Welcome to a special episode of Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly podcast, except for this time, because it's a special episode. Sometimes. <laughs> a usually fortly, fortnightly podcast where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hello, Stephen. Uh, weren't we just here? Uh, yes. It's a sp- it's a special, it's a bonus episode. It, it really is a bonus episode. We did an episode last week. We'll do an episode next week. This is like inserted in between special, That's right. super special bonus episode for two reasons. One of which is uh, things that just happened on Mars as we record this. And the other one is uh, our, our uh, big interview that we did um, coming up later in this very podcast. You will hear us talk to Ron Moore, the co-creator of For All Mankind, a, a television program on Apple TV Plus about space and related subjects. <laughs> but first, we got to talk about perseverance. What a what an exciting day! So we, we're recording this. It touched down just a few minutes ago. They got the first pictures back, and it seems from all early indications that it went perfectly, which is really exciting. Yeah, it's nice when your little uh, 3D animation that you make and put up on the web matches what actually happens, because that mm-hmm. means everything went pretty well, it sounds like. So this is the Mars 2020 mission, the Perseverance rover. Um, and unlike the other two spacecraft last week that went into orbit around Mars, Perseverance just goes straight on in. That's right. Uh, breaks in the atmosphere using a heat shield drops to the surface, extends a parachute to slow down, does some uh, some sky crane maneuvers to slow down even further and lower the uh, lower the rover onto the surface and then the the sky crane uh, zips away. And all it hit all of its uh, all of its targets. And you know another one of the amazing things about this is that um, this is not the first time this has happened, but it, we have such a fleet of spacecraft that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter was relaying data back from Perseverance during its landing to Earth because during the landing, it goes beyond the direct contact between Earth and and where it's landing. It can't talk to us directly. So it's relaying it all through another spacecraft that we sent to Mars uh, that is orbiting around. And it looks like they hit... Uh, right in the center of their uh, of their target of where they're where they were intending to land, and that's another funny thing. We'll know more soon, but that's another funny thing about this mission is that it it has a much more precise landing zone, and it's actually landed in a place with a lot of more more obstacles, and it's got some kind of machine learning esque uh, landing cameras that try to uh, steer it to exactly where they wanted to land as opposed to sort of the bigger bullseye that the other missions had to hit. So yeah, so far, so far as we know, two pictures already came down. Um, again, just imagine a little, uh, well, it's not little, like uh, we land a couple of tons on the surface of Mars and it immediately takes two pictures and sends those JPEGs to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that's overhead, which relays them onto planet Earth and we see them uh, 11 minutes later. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing. It is absolutely amazing, and it is just the beginning. This uh, this rover will go through a checkout process and make sure everything is safe and sound, and then they're going to be off exploring Jezero Crater, which seems like a really good place to find evidence of ancient microbial life on the surface of Mars. It was a yeah. seems like it was looking at uh, imagery that it was once filled with water. There's like an inlet and an outlet so you could see water coming in and pooling there. And it's going to be able to explore a whole lot. One thing that's unique about Perseverance, even though it's it's based on the same chassis as Curiosity, basically everything's been upgraded and it'll be able to drive much faster and much farther than its uh, its older brother, Curiosity. So I think that will be exciting to see those miles rack up over the coming months and hopefully years. Yeah, and it's exploring because of their their uh, attempt to get much more precise. It's exploring more interesting terrain, a little more dangerous if you can't land precisely. But because they were able to land precisely, um, there's a lot of interesting like outflow channels and all of that stuff. It's like the banks of the ancient river are right there. Um, and of course, there's a little uh, a squatter, a little... <laughs> Little squatter, the helicopter that's stuck underneath that will be released as part of our, an experiment. And, and uh, if it flies properly, will be the first flying thing on another world, which is pretty great. Yeah. So, and that's going to lay uh, the groundwork for 
future flying things on other worlds. Right. Exactly right. So there's a lot there and there's a lot going to be a lot more to talk about but what we can report so far including the fact that i believe it recorded sound and video on descent so we may actually get a much uh, better picture uh, after the fact of what the seven minutes of terror looked like or at least the end of those minutes descending onto the surface of mars that's pretty amazing but um much more to come and we'll definitely be covering everything that goes on with perseverance on liftoff um, but, uh, what a day it's, it's just, you know, to see all the nervous people on the video stream at, at JPL and everybody is, is just beside themselves. There's nothing they can do. The Rover just has to do the, the spacecraft has to do what it needs to do. And then 11 minutes later, those signals come back and, uh, and it seems to have hit all its targets, which is pretty awesome. Wow. What a day. Whew. Yeah. But it's not over. Another amazing thing here, at least for us, for liftoff, uh, we're going to talk to Ron Moore, who uh, you may know from his other work in television. Uh, he worked on Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. He, he did the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, and he is also uh, running or helped to run... Uh, Outlander, which is on Stars, which is a show that I have watched all of, I think. And his current show that he, or his newest show, is For All Mankind, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. It is a story about space, but it's uh, a story about space with a little bit of a different twist. It's a it's an alternate history story, the premise being that the Russians get to the moon before America, and it causes a reinvigorated space race. And season one came out a year ago, a little more than a year ago, I think. And season one um, starts in the 60s and goes to the kind of mid-70s. Uh, and the season two starts in the 80s. It's a sort of a, a, a decade later. Um, and season two premieres on February 19th on Apple TV+. Plus. Season one is available. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, just watch that too on Apple TV+. Plus. And, uh, and it will be releasing episodes weekly on Fridays. And we talked to, to Ron Moore about uh, season the show in general, season two in general. And then there is a spoiler horn that you will hear if you don't want to be spoiled on the contents of some of the things that happen in episode one. So without further ado, let's talk to Ron Moore. Ron, thank you so much for joining us on liftoff it's really exciting to talk to you i've been watching your stuff on tv for for years not just for all mankind and it's great to talk to you about we're going to nerd out about some space stuff i think oh fun (laughs) that's why i'm here let me get into it uh i've got so many questions that i've formed really while watching season one and and then watching episode one of season two um the thing that fascinates me about for all mankind is that it is this mixture of real science and real NASA history with your extrapolation because you're in a, a, a kind of alternate timeline and alternate history. And so I'm curious, what is your process about like, what connections do you try to maintain to real stuff that people are going to be familiar with from our history while also having the freedom to kind of tell whatever story you want to tell? Like this in season two, the space shuttle is there, but it's not quite the space shuttle. We know we see Ronald Reagan. There's a Skylab in season two. Um, and, and, you know, clearly you're not just saying, well, that stuff didn't happen and we're going in our own way. You're trying to weave in like some real stuff um, with your storytelling. So how do you approach that? Well, uh, from the get-go, we said um, we wanted this to all be plausible. We wanted to say, okay, how could the space program have really expanded and kind of become the program that people like me growing up in the 70s thought it was going to be? Right. So from the Soviets landing on the moon first forward, everything had to sort of you know have a, a sense of reality to it. And we also wanted the audience to kind of recognize certain elements of whatever time period we we were in whether it was the 70s or the 80s or beyond so that there was a sense of oh yeah I kind of know that history I've heard some of those things and even people that aren't deep aficionados of the space program yeah they kind of know what the space shuttle is and they and they can kind of recognize that and then it was uh, a question of all right in our alternate reality what are the connections that we're drawing? How, <clears throat> how do you get to a space shuttle in our alternate reality? And what's the purpose of Skylab in the alternate reality? And we sort of said, 
like in those two those two particular instances, well, the space shuttle was part of the uh, original NASA program that was presented to Nixon in I think '69 or thereabouts. That had the shuttle, it had space stations, a moon base, and a, and a Mars mission. And the Nixon administration basically said, "Ah, we'll take a space shuttle." <laughs> so in our version, we said, well, they're going to get them all. Like they're going to basically green light everything because the, the world has changed and the national priorities have changed. But space shuttle is still part of that. Same thing with Skylab. Planning for Skylab was already underway when the moon mission hand uh, happened. In our version of reality, what was going to be Skylab uh, the first Skylab sort of becomes uh, the Jamestown moon base. But the idea to do a Skylab is still there at NASA. They're still, in our version, they're still making Saturn V. So they sort of, you know, continue that that development process and they make a Skylab. You'll note when you see our Skylab, it actually does not have the wounded Skylab, you know, the Skylab <laughs> that was launched, as as listeners of your podcast probably know, you know, one of the big solar panels was dam was broken and damaged and right. never deployed correctly. And in our version, it does. So it's it's taking things like that and just deciding, well, what could happen in a in an alternate scenario that is still tethered to reality? Because we didn't want to get so far away from the history that people knew that it just felt like we were telling a story about a, you know, a completely made up world that had no real uh, relationship to the one that exists. You've got a lot of presidents in For All Mankind. And I know in season two, um, in, in episode one, we hear Ronald Reagan a lot. And I know your timeline is different, right? Because you had Ted Kennedy and then Reagan gets elected uh, a little bit earlier in 76. Um, but it's also a little bit of a touchstone to reality, right? To say, well, you you know, right. you guys know Ronald Reagan, right? Well, here he is. And it, it sort yeah. of helps anchor the show maybe a little bit in some of our reality, even though it's a very different world. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, if you're doing a show about the 1980s, I mean, it's the Reagan <laughs> era. It's hard not to tell a story about the 80s without some touchstone of Reagan. If he was completely missing from the show, you are living in a very different world. So we also just wanted to embrace that. We were We wanted the second season to... Uh, become a Cold War piece, uh, that the confrontation between the Soviets and the Americans is heightened, the Cold War is heating up, and that the militarization of space pulls the space program into the confrontation between the two superpowers. So Ronald Reagan had to be kind of part and parcel of that whole equation. Does it get harder to maintain that connection to our actual timeline the further the show goes along? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, it, it, you can see we're diverting more and more as time goes on. So it's just, you know, it's an expanding, you know, angle. Eventually, it's going to be very, very separate from from where we are in reality. But we're going to still try to maintain certain touchstones as we get into the 90s and in season three. Okay, now we're really lots of things have changed. The presidents are very different. Uh, the space program is radically different. The world has changed, but we still want some kind of common touchstone so that people are watching it can kind of go, oh yeah, that is the 90s. Whether it's music or pop cultural <laughs> references or certain political things, you still want them to kind of recognize recognize the decade. Yeah, you, you still got to have some flannel in the 90s, right? You got to, <laughs> exactly. just a little, <laughs> just a little. Um, I, in addition to the, I mean, you mentioned something like not the not the bad sort of broken space or uh, Skylab, but the the good Skylab. One of my uh, earliest memories as a kid was my parents took me outside and we watched uh, Skylab pass overhead as it, uh, you know, which sounds beautiful, except it was as it was having its orbit decay and it was going to reenter right. in over <laughs> yeah. Australia. So it's like there it goes, <laughs> goodbye, goodbye. Uh, <laughs> but you know, you one of the thing that you and presumably you've got some great um, consultants. I, I get the sense that there are a lot of uh, space nerds on this show, but you've also got some great consultants too. I, I'm I've been impressed with the untraveled NASA paths. I mean, you mentioned that original plan. You had you ended season one with that Sea Dragon launch, mm -hmm. you know, do you, um, is there inspiration and research that goes into kind of digging up the roads not taken? And is it, you know, mostly fun Easter egg stuff, or do you actually use it as inspiration for uh, telling the story you want to tell? It, it, it's definitely both. I mean, beginning of season one, as we were putting the writer's room together, I started digging into, well, what is out there? What is, what information is there on plans that NASA came up with, but didn't realize? And I was pretty surprised to see how much there was. I mean, there were there was an entire book whose name whose title is escaping me now. There was like an e press book that was, I think, almost you know, roads untaken or something that had 
chapter by chapter all these different programs that I had never even heard of. There was like a plan to convert the Gemini spacecraft into, you know, something that would go to the moon and, you know, to take a third person in it and all these like wild things, various plans for moon bases, various plans for um, uh, other orbital laboratories and uh, spy platforms. And somewhere in that research, I stumbled across Sea Dragon. And I was like, what? Seriously? <laughs> and then I Googled more online and found, you know, people, there were uh, s- some websites that put together like a, you know, a sample launch of what it might look like. And I was like, are you, that's amazing. And launch out of the water and how big is this thing? And I was like, went back to the original book and sure enough, it was in there and uh, had all the, the, you know, why it didn't happen, but that it was a real thing. And I just thought that's perfect because it really, symbolize how different the space program could have been you know, and how ambitious it truly could have gotten. And that the, the launch alone would look nothing like we had ever seen uh, a rocket launch look like in this country, unless you were looking at like a Poseidon missile or something. And I thought that's a great way to end season one. And we kept trying to work it in all season one, actually. It's like, if you look carefully in the second episode during Von Braun's uh, uh, testimony before Congress, he's holding a model of the sea dragon and talking about it. And there were some cut scenes where Von Braun and Margot Madison, uh, they're in a conference room and they're talking about something else, but on the chalkboard behind him, he's like working on an engine for sea dragon. And sea dragon was going to be something that Von Braun in our version was like a big proponent of, and then Margot was going to take up the cause and make that the, the big follow on to the Saturn V. We never quite realized it. It was like an idea that we just kept playing around with. And it ended up just kind of playing in the background of that scene. And then, but then giving us the, the end credit sequence that takes us into season two. And then by the time you get into season two, Sea Dragon is now, a you know, a common mode of, of, uh, of lift. It's like actually lifting the uh, components for the Jamestown base are lifted by Sea Dragon. Most of the resupply missions come from Sea Dragon. And that's and that in combination with the uh, the space shuttle are, are major elements of the of the uh, the way NASA does business in the 1980s. So you're sort of it sounds like you're sort of starting with doing a bunch of uh, of research and and knowing about these little pieces, and then as you're building your your story for the season, you think, can I work that in? What fits? What doesn't fit? Do you ever have yeah. to go? Like say we really need something here, and then like see if you can find something, or does it mostly work the other direction? Uh, this, it it does kind of work both ways, you know. When we were like in season one, when we were coming up with the whole in sequence, and you know um, uh, Apollo twenty or twenty one, I mix up the numbers in my own head. Forgive me, uh, but the the crippled spacecraft that's on the way to the moon, and then right. you know the rescue of it, and how that was going to work with the LSAM. And we sort of knew conceptually, basically, that we wanted one ship to be crippled and we wanted Baldwin to come up from the surface and somehow rescue it. And we kept kicking different ideas around, didn't really have an idea of how it was going to work and brought in Garrett Reisman, who, as you know, is one of our technical consultants and a former NASA astronaut. And he helped us figure it out, you know, come up with the, the tank and could you throw the tank between the two ships? Uh, how could they refuel? You know, there's all these technical things that normally aren't that important in a sci-fi show, frankly, because you can just gloss over a lot of things when you're making up all the technology. But when we were sort of saying, well, we wanted this all to be rooted in real things they had and how real spacecraft worked at the time, that kind of limited our options. And it it became a very technical discussion with Garrett getting up and drawing you know, diagrams on the whiteboard and <laughs> explaining or, orbital mechanics to us and, you know, fuel supply <laughs> and how this, at all, you know, it, it was very technical for a bunch of liberal arts writers in a room. And uh, there are a couple of writers that are more into the space program than others. And some had never even really, really knew anything about the program until they started working on the show. But we all sort of had to dive in and really kind of understand what we were writing about in order to in order to realize it. That scene made my hands very sweaty while watching it. It was like <laughs> good, good, <laughs> it was very yeah. intense, super, super tense. And I mean, it yeah. sounds like you you do guys you you all have a commitment to trying to make it real rather than just making something up and saying, oh well, you know, it's magic. If you can, yeah. if you can keep it real, yeah. That was important. It just, I, it was important to me personally and to Matt and Ben, my co-creators on the show. I mean, but for me in particular, it, it was trying to realize the dream of the program that could have been. 
which was something that mattered to me a lot growing mm. up. And I was always heartbroken that we never got that program. So I didn't just want to make a magic program that did all kinds of things. I wanted to kind of see what the program could have really done, you know, what it might have really looked like, what were its capabilities, you know, and then to have an adventure with them. I mean, so that was kind of always the goal. I think a, an, another way that this show has really resonated with people, not only setting it like what we've been talking about against the backdrop of possible visions of what NASA could have been in this era had things gone differently, but you also have historical names and characters. And in season one, we meet a lot of those people, but as the season goes on, they sort of, some of them fade into the background and the the main characters that we're following now are people who have you know, fictional characters inserted into this alternative timeline. How do you go about this decision-making, when to use a historical figure, when to use uh, a new character, and how they should interact even? Right, because you had Gene Kranz, and you had you had Deke Slayton, and I, I think Sally Ride is in season two. Like, you do have historical mm-hmm. figures there, but they're not our main characters. Right. I mean, with historical characters, you know, we kind of feel honor-bound to keep them within... Uh, the realm of who they really were and who those people were. So if you're doing wild and, you know, radical things with characters or making them alcoholics or whatever, you know, for story purposes, you don't really want to do that to someone who's real. That, that doesn't feel like you're playing fair. So you try to keep the historical people involved in the show in a way that sort of honors them and who they were for the real people they were and kind of ask yourself, well, you know, what would really happen to Deke Slayton? You know, Deke Slayton was a real person. He's really in charge of the astronaut office when the show fades in. How does how do these affect these events affect him? And we tried to just play the character as close to what we thought Deke's personality was and how he would what his attitude on things would be. But then there was also just sort of the fun of realizing that you know Deke did decide just to put himself on Apollo Soyuz because he could. And we said, well, that that man is still going to go into space in our version, and he's just mm-hmm. going to go into space in a different way. Yeah, makes sense. Um, another another thing that you did with the divergence um, that wasn't necessarily required, but you're making a show in the in the 21st century. So obviously, the real history of NASA in the early days is it's a lot of white guys, and your show is diverse. You have lots of women, you have people of color in the cast, uh, not just as astronauts, but people behind the scenes. Um, You know, we've seen things like there's the Mercury 13 documentary about the women who are qualified, but not allowed to be astronauts. And there's obviously things like hidden figures about the women behind the scenes. You know, what what was your approach to this? Because you, you could have said, well, you know, back in those days, it was all white guys. And that's not at even remotely what For All Mankind does. Well, we said, um, it's going to start there because that's where it was. But we wanted, I wanted the show to sort of say, if we had gone into space in a bigger and more, you know, uh, committed way, the world would have changed for the better. So what are the ways in which the world can change? Mm-hmm. And would there be societal change and cultural change as a result? And how do you get there from here? And so then it was, well, you know, we just started thinking about it. You know, the Soviets put a woman in space 20 some odd years before NASA did. Well, what if they try to up the ante once they get to the moon by putting a woman on the moon? Wouldn't that freak out the Americans into saying, hey, where's our women astronauts? Where where are they? And that NASA and the administration kind of react to that by like, well, give us some women, get us some women. <laughs> so you have Nixon's women suddenly, right? And But once they're in space and doing that job and doing heroic things and being brave and proving, you know, on a, on a national stage like that, uh, women can do different things than was thought of at the time, mostly. You know, it was a, it was a time of great social ferment and change, and the women's liberation movement was in full swing. And so the, the cultural ground had already been laid for it. But when suddenly they're doing these things, and they're doing them in space, and they're doing them dramatically in a very dangerous venture, wouldn't that go even further to cultural change? Wouldn't that start making people think about women in the program. And once you start talking about women in the program, wouldn't that also be like, and where are people of color? And wouldn't it, you know, open the door to greater diversity and start sparking that kind of social change? So that's where it all kind of came from. And I again wanted the wanted the advancement of the space program to mean 
something not just technologically but f- culturally you know that we would become a better people that the program would provide inspiration and it would provide impetus to make greater social change in the United States and around the world and that the show is ultimately kind of showing you a, a more optimistic path to the future it's the future you know i've said many times this is like the road to star trek this is like mm-hmm. the road that gets you to that kind of optimistic you know future where technology is our friend and where we solve a lot of the problems on on here on earth and we go forward you know as a as a better as a better race i like that a lot of that was done through the lens of the time like you said i mean i remember in season 1 thinking back over it at how some of the the husbands and the male partners of these women how they reacted and how it felt mm-hmm. very real for the time but for the most part they came along with it and I hope, to, I hope that that continues in season two and that, as you said, the world is a better place for this, which is a much more concise way of thinking about it than I had. But I guess that's why it's your show and not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that there, I mean, you also didn't make it this idealistic, not to bring up Star Trek again, but in Star Trek, there's a lot, uh, especially in the original series, that's sort of like, well, we solved everything now. Everything's good. And you know, there's pushback in For All Mankind. There's pushback to yeah. the women astronauts. And there's pushback. There is a really painful, dramatic scene where a character comes out. And her partner in the in the spacecraft basically is like, that's too far. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I think the pain of, of that is is real. That it's it's real people having to work at it and not just sort of say, oh, well, great, we're good now. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a deliberate choice because we didn't want it to be well, it's just all easy now. Yeah. Like everything's everything's solved because that's not true, and it and it you know devalues the effort and the the struggle that people have to overcome these things. So you know we felt like we should we should show some of that. How has the reaction been from people in the space industry since this does hit at least starting uh, close to home and and shows this alternative timeline? Uh, positive overall. I mean, we do, we don't get any official reaction from NASA because they can't really have anything to do with the show. Uh, is NASA's sadly because they've taken so much flack over the years for the fake moon landing that they, they mm-hmm. they've retreated to a policy that says we can't support anything that is not 100% historically accurate. So as a result, they couldn't really do anything with our show. So we never really have any feedback from the actual space program. Unofficially, we hear through the grapevine, they pretty, they like it. <laughs> That's good. Do you have the like the SpaceX? Did you get an email from Elon Musk or something like that saying I love it? Oh, I'd love to. I mean, Garrett <laughs> used to Garrett Reisman used to work at the SpaceX though. And right. He says that we have fans over there for sure. Yeah, I bet. I mean, they got a lot of this is. I do think that that's there's sort of a a mirror going on here where there are people working in space today who are looking at that and saying, yeah, well, we didn't do it like that then, but we're trying to make it happen now. And then that's the more like the Artemis stuff that has been in the works for the last few years. The idea of going back to the moon. I do feel like that's part of the resonance and for all mankind is like, well, we didn't do it then, but you know, are we trying to get back on course now? And I, I think it adds a little bit of something to watching for all mankind to know that that, that work is progressing now. I, th- I do too. You know, it's, it's, it's current. It's, a, it's not something that's just part of a, a nostalgic past. It's still, you know, in the cards, people still get excited about it. People tuned in when SpaceX did that, the, the, the dragon crew launch to, to the space station was kind of a big deal. Those videos of the SpaceX rockets, you know, flying straight up and then landing <laughs> vertically, <laughs> which is something you've seen since Forbidden Planet. You know, it's it's like that's been around forever. We've never actually done it. And how? Oh, oh my God, look at that. It looks just like Forbidden <laughs> Planet. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Although I should just, I got to correct that. Sorry. It, no, Forbidden Planet does not have a rocket like that. That's right. Forbidden Planet is a big saucer. But it's all those fif- shows all of the, the 50, 1950s. All the 50s with the All the 50s, ships, right. yeah, yeah. I saw <laughs> Forbidden Planet for the first time a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, this is where they got all the art direction for Star Trek. I see it now. I, oh, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of DNA in It's Forbidden amazing. Yeah. Season two, we're going to talk in a minute about uh, sort of episode one, because Stephen and I watched it uh, the last couple of nights. And, um, but before we get, dig down into it a little bit more, um, I want to ask you a broader question about, so there's, there's a, the Jamestown base that is established in season one. And then obviously that is expanded upon in season two. Mm-hmm. And I know I've asked a version of this question before, but like, 
obviously you had to do a lot of thought about like, well, what does that big built out moon base look like? And do you, is there some inspiration you can take from existing plans or is that much more of extrapolation of like, okay, what would a moon base be like? What, what kind of work did you have to do to, to to sort of imagine how life on the moon works in, in season two? Yeah, it it was more of an extrapolation. I mean, we did talk about what are the current plans, you know, for a return to the moon and what are the moon base, but whenever we looked at them, it was hard to sort of retrofit them because they're all then based on things we know today, technologies that are available today, you know, lessons learned over the span of time. And you, you had to kind of deconstruct that to, well, but what would they be thinking back in the 70s? And it never helped. So it was easier to just start with um, 1970s technology and, and build on top, have the technology advance at a faster pace, uh, assume they have a lot more money and more more political willpower to do it. Uh, the first base they throw up is, like I said before, it's p- what, part of what was originally going to be Skylab. So that kind of defines the original, the original habitat module. And then they make plans to sort of expand it later in a modular kind of way so that by the time you get to season two, you can kind of see the thought process. And okay, they started here. They added on this section. What are the things they're going to need? They're going to need an operations center. They're going to need a place for the crew to live. They're going to be laboratories. There's going to have to be a power plant, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start thinking, well, what's the purpose of the base generally? Well, they're here as part of this mining operation. They've discovered ice right over there. Okay, so how do you expand the the mining operation from this point? Where are they going to land the LSAMs? Where's the waste going? Where's the nuclear power plant? You know, it, it just became a logical exercise of like going through the things, what you would need, how you would do it, how many flights you could have plausibly made in the 10-year span using Sea Dragon as a regular thing to get the components up there, then to build them and assemble them and how, you know, there was a lot of just sort of thought of how could they do this at the time if all went reasonably well. And those decisions kind of informed the, the basic layout of Jamestown and the design we ultimately came up with. Now, we've peppered you with a lot of technical questions, and we're going to dive into episode one here. But um, for people who are listening who haven't seen the show, I'll, I'll just say it's fun to talk about all of this extrapolation. This is one of the things that makes For All Mankind so fun to watch. But it is all in surface of the stories you're telling with the characters. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to overdo it with the technical information about making a moon base and say, in the end, the moon base is the setting for a lot of drama. Some of it is very technical. A lot of it is very character driven. And that's why the, I, why I love the show is that it's set in this, you, you obviously considered all of the science and technology, but you also are using it as a stage to tell your stories about your characters. And I appreciate that too. Oh, thanks. And, and that is how we think of the show. It is a character show. First and foremost, everything else is about how does that support the story of these people? Right. So don't be afraid, potential viewers. Just uh, that's go, right. Just don't go watch it. We're going to fire off the spoiler horn now. If you're afraid of spoilers for episode one, come back to this part after you've watched episode one, which premieres on Apple TV Plus on February 19th. So there's a huge time jump that you make in season two which is it's not surprising because it's about the 80s. You do this montage. So you you wrote this episode. It's your it's your baby. Um uh we talked about it a little bit before but like what what goes into deciding what goes in that montage? Cuz you're like, "Oh, so John Lennon survives. Um Sadat doesn't get assassinated because there's no peace with Israel, but Pope John Paul II does get assassinated." You know, how much of that is just having fun with alt history? Easter eggs and how much of it is like, uh, you know, what is the download that I need to give the viewers to understand the March of Time? Because it's a really fun segment. And I was sitting there thinking, like, did you just make a list of like all the all the alternatives that you could have put in about what happens between the 70s and the early 80s? Uh, It was sort of all the above. You know, Um, it it was something that's uh, developed as we were working on the show. We realized actually there was one of the Apple executives uh, suggested he said um, to me was he was reading. uh, scripts for season two. He said, you know, I really love that piece you did in the, in the first episode of season one, where we used some of the archival footage of John Kennedy you know, and him in the early days of the space program that kind of put you in a certain time and place. Wouldn't it be fun to do that here? And I really took that to heart and thought, that's a great idea. That was a nice piece of the first season. And we had a lot of things in our alternate timeline, because we had fleshed out a fairly detailed alternate timeline of, of history for the whole whole series. And there were a lot of things in that timeline that we never got around to being able to put into the show proper. 
And then there were some things that are in the background of the show and some things that are, come more to the forefront. So it was sort of a matter of, all right, how, let's build out this montage. Let's talk about the events the audience needs to know, like Ronald Reagan gets elected in 1976. And what are the fun things? You know, and what are the sort of interesting, ooh, oh my God, I can't believe that, or I'd forgotten about that. And to put a lot of it in there, to make it something you'd have to watch more than once just to see everything that's going by. You know, there's like quick offhand references to the Camp David Accords collapsing and, you know, the Soviets are not going to invade Afghanistan right. and all these sorts of alternate pieces. Almost all of them were important for our alternate history, you know, that they they were building blocks to things that we were doing. Um, and some of them are more important to know than others. You know, John Lennon was an important one because he figured in, he does figure into the story a little deeper into the season. You know, it's not the last time you'll hear his name come up. So we wanted to posit right up front that, hey, he's alive in this, in this version of, of alternate history. Whereas the, the death of the Pope was sort of an interesting thing that we had kicked around, but didn't, wasn't really meaningful in, um, in a story sense to our particular show, but it was sort of an interesting detail. And hey, why not? Let's put that in too. Well, I, I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a really fun montage. And I, I love, you know, I like alt history stuff, but that was, it was a lot of fun to see the, the you know, butterfly effect going on. It's our world, but not quite as we know it kind of thing. It uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I thought it was really interesting and I, I really enjoyed it, how the episode begins with this emotional and inspirational scene. The astronauts are going to go out and watch the sunrise uh, they're singing. We see their response to the sun hitting them. It's it is just a very like nice collective moment. Um, and then the show basically backs up. What is it? Twenty four or forty eight hours to yeah. um, and kind of fills in what's going on. Uh, so many shows start with like a moment of danger or like hey something wild is getting ready to happen. We're going to back up. But in episode one, we start with this beautiful moment and then back up from there. It's like good vibes, good vibes to kick it off. It's great. We need more of those in 2021. I completely agree. (laughs) So what went into that, that choice? Uh, It was that we wanted to start it on a a positive note. I mean, we want the show to be, it is an inspirational show an aspirational show. And we wanted to sort of touch on that from the very beginning that, Hey, we've moved into the future and a lot of scary things are going to happen this year, but we're in a positive place, positive state of mind, and good things are happening there and in the world and sit back and enjoy the show. And that's, that was just kind of the spirit in which we wanted to open. That's, I mean, Bob Marley, every little thing's going to be all right. Like, and, yeah. and, and it's not as if, I mean, you watch the show and you realize that actually this is right before a moment of high drama and peril, but the show right. doesn't. <laughs> make us feel the the peril yet instead it's like start with good vibes and then we'll get there like yeah <laughs> eventually yeah. i think i think that that worked really well i i really enjoyed that um okay i want to ask you about um and this is a long-term planning thing and since you're a you're an apple tv plus show i you know i know you don't want to comment on future products that's a, an apple thing but um you know <laughs> one of your challenges because you, you know we, we've read about how this is sort of like the 70s and then the 80s and you said season three it's the 90s um so you've got your characters aging more rapidly than they do in real life. And you've got um, the stories you're telling about the characters we know from last season. You've got some new characters. We have familiar characters that have moved on to different jobs or they've left NASA. You know, what? How, to what extent is For All Mankind a story about the characters that you've got and how much of it is a story of the people who kind of move through the space program because over time, you know, you do have to age up these characters. And so, you know, I I know this is kind of a weird question to ask, but like how much of it is we're going to follow these people that you met in season one and we're going to follow them forward. And how much of it is, you know, some of them are going to filter out and new people are going to filter in because we're telling a broader story, you know, because it's characters, but it's also a broader canvas. I think it is both of those things simultaneously. And we kind of knew that uh, from the beginning, you know, we're telling the story of this program, but you tell that story through the eyes of the people who, who participate in it. And over this span of time, you're going to, yeah, you're going to see some people age out, other people that are going to die or or move out of the program, but you're going to see other people coming up uh, behind them. You know, people that were kids, in the first episode <laughs> or the first season are now adults in the second season. And, you know, then, then eventually, hopefully you get to see their kids and there's a generational aspect to it, which is, I think part of saying that the space program is a larger 
uh, endeavor that is not just about a specific moment in time. It's it's something that is working for the betterment of all mankind. You know, as part of the title and, and the idea that this is some is a multi generational endeavor that they're all engaged in. It's also hearkening back to and you know part of the inspiration for this con- for the structure was uh, a mini series that I loved back in the eighties that was called Centennial, and Centennial was based on a I believe a James Michener novel, if I'm not mistaken. And it told the story of a town called Centennial that was in Colorado. And it told the whole story. Like, I think it literally begins with the formation of the earth and the coming of the dinosaurs and so on. <laughs> and But then it gets to like the Indians and the first settlers or the first French trappers, and then goes all the way up until you know, the 1980s. And over the course of that miniseries, you got to know characters, fell in love with them, but watched them age, then got to know their children and their grandchildren, and then new people came in and other characters died. And it was fascinating, and I loved it, and I was really caught up in that kind of storytelling and watching time pass, and and yet you were watching the town grow, and you were watching the environment change, you were watching the country change, and you were really being told this very big epic story, but you were doing it on this intimate level of the particular people that were involved and that passed through this particular location in time. So I, I, I thought that was a really interesting structure. Yeah, the, um, I mean, episode one of, of season one does have prominently a young girl who is looking up at, the, at, the, at space and at the moon. And, the, you know, you, you don't have to put your cards out on the table, but watching that, I was like, well... <laughs> This is this is a very important. Oh, this is going to be an important character, but it's it. I felt like that was the show saying we're playing a long game here, right? Like you're going to yeah. see this little girl grow up, and what she ends up doing is open to question. You you know, watch and see. But like this is a, a you know an epic. This is a multi generational you know long time scale kind of story from the very beginning. Yeah, and that, again, that was a deliberate choice. We and we you weren't going to see Alita become part of the space program in season one, obviously. Right. But you knew that she was somebody that was going to be important, and mm-hmm. it was a promise, and it was like a marker to lay down to to be picked up later. And you know, in season two, you'll 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 see where Alita is in 1983. Love it. Uh, be- before we go, uh, both Jason and I felt I think we felt a little overwhelmed in the scene where Margot is um, getting briefed on everything that's that's going on. So we hear about Skylab. We're about a whole bunch of space shuttles, yep. uh, Jamestown base. There's that whiteboard, basically, of like, oh, my yeah. God, Middle, military yeah. shuttles at Vandenberg, which is a really nice uh, space nerd yeah. reference. I love that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I, I, I caught that, too. Um, and I feel like it was meant to be a little overwhelming. So we see very efficiently how huge the space program has gotten. There's like. I don't, I don't know, by my count, like a half dozen missions or more going on. There's people everywhere, things happening all the time. How do y'all balance that enormous scope of the world and this program, how big it's gotten with the specific stories that you want to show the audience? Well, I mean, you're telling it, you know, you're saying here's here's the story that you're following, you know, week to week of these particular people. It's just taking place in an enormous backdrop. But it's not that different from doing it in any large organization. If you're telling a story about the military, you know, the Pentagon is a vast, vast organization with hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people working for it around the world and doing all kinds of things all the time. And if you're doing a story at the Pentagon, that's going to be part of the backdrop and it's going to be happening and it's a very busy, chaotic place. But you're still picking out a particular story that you're telling about particular people. And why are we tuning in this week and where is this all building to? So it's still the same thing. It's just, I think, a bit overwhelming uh, to us to watch now because we're just so used to the space program being so much smaller and just very discrete missions that want launch one after a time after great buildup and you know all this thought. And we were positing a different future where NASA had become a national priority and had taken front, you know, front row in a lot of ways. So it just felt like the program would explode. And then there's still the Soviet competitors out there and that the the Soviets are matching a step for step. So that the space race was still going. And so they had to compete 
in all these different fields. And they were seeing real benefits from them. They were seeing benefits from the mining that was going on in the moon. They were seeing benefits from the R&D that was going on and basic science and uh, technological change was happening as a result. And there was becoming uh, consumer, the consumer benefits were happening. It was helping the economy. And it was all kind of building upon itself to the point where it was like, well, of course we're gonna keep going. Why would we stop? That that would be kind of the attitude. And then on a story level, you're just picking and choosing what are the important things. Okay, how does this affect Margot's story? You know, why? Are, you know, what's Margot up to? Where's her personal life? What is she interested and involved with? Where's Ed Baldwin in his life now that he's not uh, not a you know a, a full time working astronaut in space and he's head of the astronaut office? What's his family like? Life? What his what's his family life like? You know, what is it saying about him as a character with all this mission going on? And where's where's his place in it now that he's not on the bleeding edge anymore and he's he's like flying a desk. Yeah. So you're still golfing. sort of Yeah, he's golfing <laughs> and he golfs a lot. And he golfs in the show. You know? So uh I have one last question, which is more of a TV nerdery question, but I got you here, so I'm gonna ask it before we go. Um uh Apple TV Plus is a weekly release schedule. Um, Outlander comes out on stars. It's a weekly release schedule. We live in this era of binge watching and your storytelling. I'm going to say I'm biased here. I think, I think binge watching is great, but I really like being able to go with cliffhangers and talk about every episode week to week. How do you feel about it? I I don't want to put you in a corner where if Netflix comes to you and says, we want to drop a whole season of a show uh, as a binge that you're like, I'm on the record as being against that. But how do you feel about the start, the weekly storytelling? Because it's obviously uh, something you've been doing for a long time. But um, I, I watch For All Mankind and think this is a story built to be told weekly with the pauses in the middle and with dramatic endings. And, it, you know, am I reading too much into that? Is it really just making TV and it doesn't matter how it releases? Or do you have a, a feeling about having that weekly rollout? I, th- I think, you know, I think they're both valid ways to watch. And I certainly binge shows. So it's not like I, I look down on binging and think that's a bad way to do it. I do believe, though, that you get one shot at this idea of the weekly rollout and that you get one shot to sort of have people take a week in between episodes to talk to each other, to discover a sense of community and to speculate about what's coming next. Because once the show is finished, then it's going to be bingeable forever. Like, so you only get this one narrow uh, time frame where you can build that kind of uh, a fan base and that kind of conversation and have people guess and speculate. And I think that's part of the fun of of being a fan of, of a show is wondering what's coming next and talking to your friends about it. So I'm still a big fan of that format. Uh, I do think, I think you're absolutely right that my story instincts are still very much geared to the weekly format because I do kind of think of them in that in that way like you know here's a here's a discrete episode and then next week you're going to see the next one and that does influence the way you construct the story if I was doing them uh like for Netflix and I knew that they were all going to be um dropped at the same time I would probably construct them in a different way they wouldn't have quite the same endings the rhythm of the internal rhythm of each uh, hour episode would be very different. Um, it's sort of like if you think about, I mean, the only one that I, I know off the top of my head like that is like House of Cards. When they did House of Cards, it's almost impossible in my mind to separate them out into different episodes. They all just kind of run together. It's just like one big story and you're telling it just pretty much continuously. And there was like one episode, and I think the first season where the president goes back to his, his alma mater right, his college. And then he, and that one was kind of a standalone, almost like a standalone episode. But for the most part, that series just ran continuously. And that's a different viewing experience. When you're watching shows like mine, back to back to back, there is a certain roller coaster effect to it. You know, you're riding towards a climax and then, okay, and then we're going to get on the roller coaster again. And then you ride towards the next climax, right, at the end of every hour. And you can just kind of tell shows that are meant to be viewed in a certain way. It doesn't mean you can't. It just means that's part of the intention of the creator. It's somewhat similar to when I go back and I look at, uh, say, if I look at an episode of Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, and every once in a while I'll pull one down and just say, I've watched this in a while and I watch it. When you're watching those shows without commercials, it's very odd because it keeps building to these uh, <laughs> commercial breaks that don't exist anymore. Right. And, you know, and, that's, and it's a very odd rhythm to sit down and watch now a 45 or, you know, 48 minute episode or whatever it is that has these, this internal clock that's always driving you to a a phantom commercial break. So when you're watching uh, 
Outlander back to back to back, it's probably a similar experience. You're probably like very aware that, okay, and then yeah, that's the end. Um, so I don't know, you know, I, I think both, both, uh, methods are valid. I think people still enjoy mo- both methods. And I think I'll probably, we'll probably continue producing both methods for this foreseeable future. I grew up watching Doctor Who and they edited those 25 minute episodes into omnibus versions for PBS. And it was the same pacing, which is like, why is something dramatic happening every 25 minutes? <laughs> it yeah. doesn't make sense, yeah. but that was, <laughs> yeah, it's odd. That's how it was, how, how it was built. Well, Ron, thank you uh, so much for taking some time. Uh, with us to talk about For All Mankind. I know we have really enjoyed it and our audience, I'm sure, will enjoy our time together too. So thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. And everybody can check it out. Apple TV Plus starting on February 19th and rolling out weekly. Very important, rolling out weekly. And then you can binge it later if you like. (laughs) That's right. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Well, that was great. Yeah, that was that was great. I, I I try really hard not to fanboy too much about the fact that like I can mention the name of the first episode of Next Generation he wrote, and I noticed I, I like I could ask him about Klingons. Not going to do it. Mm-mm. I, I I tried to <laughs> I tried to hold back, but I'm looking forward to watching the rest of uh, season two of For All Mankind. Uh, very excited that that show is back. Really, it just gives you the. The feelings, and yes. yeah, it's a little bit road not taken about some stuff. But you know, you and I have talked about the space shuttle a lot. I think it's, I think it's fun. Season two has got a lot of the space shuttle doing, unlike movies where space shuttles do things that they weren't, they couldn't possibly have done. At least here, they have an alternate history, so they can say, ah, but in this world, space shuttles did more stuff. It's good. Before we go, I want to mention two podcasts, other podcasts that people should should check out. Apple itself is doing a. For All Mankind official podcast. Uh, There's a link in the show notes to it on Apple Podcasts. And it is going to star cast members and I think crew members of the show. uh, Talking about behind the scenes stuff and what the episodes were like and what they're about. It is going to be fortnightly. The show comes out once a week, but the, uh, the official Apple Podcast will be every other week. So go check that out. And then Jason, you've got something cooking too. Yeah, um... I am doing a podcast with Dan Morin where we're going to break down episode by episode every episode of season two of For All Mankind uh, over at The Incomparable. You can go to theincomparable.com slash T-E-E-V-E-E. It's TV. TV. <laughs> slash Mankind. Uh, we'll also put a link in the show notes. And uh, that's where you can subscribe and uh, and listen to that. And that, that first episode will be uh, up when the show premieres on February 19th. So you can go there then and uh, every week you'll hear us talking about it over there. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be it should be fun a fun ride to uh to watch it and then talk about it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, special episode of Liftoff. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, we got them on the website at relay.fm/liftoff/143. I think that about does it, Jason. I think so. I think so. We'll be back next week. Next week for our regular episode for uh, some more Mars news and uh, hoping to have a special guest for that too. So the specialness continues, but it'll be more like a regular episode of Liftoff uh, next week. But until then, say goodbye, Stephen. Bye, y'all.